You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. With host, General David Grange. With co-host, Ranger Doug. Until we go down. Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour. Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 21st program and our sixth episode in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, we'll be joined by our guests, Brian Downing and John Fenzel, with myself, Ranger Doug, and General Grange. Tonight, we'll answer three questions. What about disinformation? What about the war in the South? And what about a peace agreement? Over to you, General. Thank you, uh, Ranger Doug. And and because of the, our listeners out there, we were asked to continue on with this, the Ukrainian war episodes. And so we're doing our sixth program tonight. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. We have guests that you're familiar with. They have a lot of experience, both military and also out of the military, uh, that has to do with war conflict, government agencies, as well as the military. So on our guests tonight, I'd like to start off, John Fenzel, with yourself. And the first thing to get right into this, the first thing I'd like to talk about is from the outside looking into the war in Ukraine, how can we best discern the ground truth and avoid disinformation? There appears to be a lot of disinformation. There is a challenge that the proliferation of misinformation today in conflict is everywhere. So please take that on for us and explain how do we, what's going on in Ukraine, reference disinformation, how do we handle that for ground truth? Thanks very much, General Grange, and it's just great to be with, here with you again, with, uh, with yourself and with Ranger Doug. You know, I mean, it's a great question because we're seeing it uh, in spades. It's, it's, it's almost ubiquitous where um, we're just, you know, and, and I'm not sure exactly who said it first, but um, I think it was Hiram Johnson who was a senator back in the day in, in California, you said the first casualty when it comes to war is the truth. And, of course, our, our version of that is the first casualty of war is the truth. And, and you know, it's interesting because that senator, said, you know, uh, he died actually on August 6, 1945. That was the same day that the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And, you know, but this that whole question, I think, it, it kind of gets to this whole struggle that we all suffer from, you know, is from the outside looking in in a war like this. And that's how do we discern what's accurate, what isn't. And, um, and by the way, you know, I think all sides really do struggle with this for any number of reasons, whether you're Russian, Ukrainian, or, or us as Americans just trying to figure out what's really happening. So we're in this, this era of social and digital media, and I, I think we're seeing a lot of um, my own opinion is I think we're seeing a lot of editorial projecting, particularly from the media, that doesn't really serve us well at all because that gets away from what the real ground truth is. Um, and, it, and it's not only misinformation, it's it's a real problem on both sides of this conflict. And it may be well-intentioned, you know, and, and possibly it's uh, an unintentional proliferation of just this, this false narrative. Um, and we might not mean for it to be, but it is. And... Um, 
And so we end up with these these kind of uninvestigated thoughts that can automatically be published um, digitally in social media, whether it's Facebook or TikTok, whatever it might be. And you know, and, and it's basically all designed to serve whatever purpose the um, either the the person who's posting it is, or the person who originally published it. And um, and so you know, the media does a lot of that. Uh, while we fuel others, it's probably by accident, just regular citizens on social media. And, and by the way, you know, Ukraine is guilty of it, too. And, and so these are all things I think that we have to talk about, you know, um, and, and be cognizant of. And, and then also to ask, you know, kind of what can we all do? And I think that, you know, there's a number of things that we can do. We, we can talk about those if you want. But, you know, you really have to – all of us have to be really ruthless in the way that we treat our own sources. And, and I know that as you're looking at a conflict like this, all of us are kind of trying to, you know, going to our kind of go-to sources. But even those sources sometimes can uh, can be uh, questioned, and they should be questioned. So that's uh, that's kind of my initial take on on, on that question, General. Well, you know, this uh, information operations, uh, the use of disinformation, uh, you know, propaganda. Uh, it's kind of obvious that both sides are using it. It's a weapon. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Ukrainians use it just like the Russians. Putin uses it just like Lazinsky. They all use it. And one side is using it just to keep his the people back at home, you know, at bay and, and happy. The other side's using it to get NATO support. Yeah, it goes on and on and on. And it's, uh, I mean, you can't blame them for using it. It's a weapon. I guess it's not illegal. You know, we can talk about reality, I guess, but I guess it's not illegal. News is supposed to report the facts. The old Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern and outside of Chicago, you know, they used to call something the Medill F, the guy that started the school. And he used to say, you know, you, you do a, you do a report, you do an article and you don't base it on facts. You base it on emotions or how you personally feel, whatever. You get a Medill F in your grade. Yeah. But that's great. more and more people use it. So, so it is, it is, a, it is a weapon. What's your feel about it? as a weapon that is necessary in a battlefield to win today. That's exactly right. What we've seen, I think, is um, in any number of cases, I mean, you just kind of pick your, your own incident, but um, in the, in, in the Kremlin is, is a master at weaponizing information, and, and we see, we've seen that, you know, in, in years past is, in addition to just this conflict. But I have to tell you, you know, I, I really believe that they are also the victims of this as well, and you know, right now, uh, I, I was just seeing uh, a bunch of reports about Putin being misinformed by his own advisors about how badly that the Russian military is performing and how the Russian economy is, is being crippled by sanctions. And uh, because the senior advisors um, are, are too afraid to tell him what the, what the truth is, but then also he's, he's probably looking at his own sources as well. And so... You know, in, in many respects, he's a victim of, of groupthink as well as misinformation. And, and the problem with that is that when it comes to, you know, a head of state who's misinformed, at that point, you know, the, and we're going to, I know we're, we're, we're going to be talking about the peace process later, but that, that process of, of developing, you know, of, of, of being able to, you know, come up with a, with a good peace proposal is going to be much more difficult in that kind of an environment. Absolutely, and I'm going to I'm going to go to the other guest uh, to hit the question uh, with you also. But I, I got a couple more things I want to ask you. You know, you're an experienced soldier. Uh, you command a lot of troops. You're a veteran. We got a lot of veterans, obviously, on our show tonight, listening to this. 
is is what about disinformation to your own troops? What about if you're not really relaying commander's intent properly about what the mission's all about? What if you are uh, you don't want the troops to know why they're there in Belarus getting ready to go south towards Kiev? What's your feel about commanders using disinformation on their own soldiers? We all know that that's that's one of the, the big differentiators between um, our military and all others is, is that, that we, if anything, we over-communicate, right, um, with, with all of our troops so that everybody has the ability to act if, if, uh, if necessary in, in lieu of, of somebody who is in command or is leading. And so whenever you have a situation like that, I think that that's the, the beginning of a breakdown in the chain of command. And that's what we're seeing right now with the Russian forces in Ukraine, and, uh, and, and, and almost to an extreme, I would say. Um, and, and, and once again, we're only getting, you know, partial reports on these things. And some of them, you know, I think that we have to be wary that, that they might be cherry picked. Um, but at the end of the day, there's no doubt that that is transpiring um, in Ukraine with the Russian forces. And, and also there's no doubt that as a result, they're experiencing um, this kind of critical breakdown in, um, in, in, their, in the unit cohesion and just in the chain of command. Well, one thing's for sure in the United States military, we don't do that. And if some, some commanders uh, have done that, they're wrong. Uh, right. Because we have to explain to our soldiers the reason why. And and I think, in, in, uh, if in fact it's true, and I, be, I, I agree, I mean, I believe that it, it is true that not only did Putin lie to his soldiers, but he is their commander-in-chief, but so did their general officers, as an example, and probably down to the colonel, light colonel level. I, I, uh, it backfires once the ground truth comes out because they lost the moral domain in leading men into battle. In other words, yeah. the trust and confidence is destroyed. And that's a combat multiplier which they have suffered for by using different information, disinformation on their own soldiers. I have one other quick question, uh, and then I want to get the rest of our panel on this, on this, uh, in disinformation. Uh, subtopic tonight, and that is there was that New York uh, Times article that came out. What if Putin did miscalculate? In other words, everybody's saying, "Well, he's a little off his rocker. Uh, he miscalculated. He thought he'd have a blitzkrieg. He thought he thought that uh, the Ukrainian army would capitulate early. You know, that uh, they would have more people welcome him as they cross the line of departure into the combat zone, etc." So this article talks about, well, what if he's a wily fox? What if he's not a cornered rat? But what if he is very smart about this whole thing, using disinformation to basically trick uh, Western armies, uh, those against him, NATO and, and EU, et cetera, and maybe this was part of his plan all along? What's your take on that? If he is that way, then I would, um, you know, I would, I would actually, you know, have a lot of admiration for his, his level of focus, and that's about it, but... You know, I think that he did miscalculate in a, in, a, in a significant way. The problem with Vladimir Putin is that, first of all, he's, he's a despot. He, he ha, ha, he, he's an authoritarian who um, controls all aspects of the elements of power, at least ostensibly so. And I think that the, the big issue there is that he... If he did, if he was this wily fox that's being described, 
and he was, uh, you know, kind of singularly focused all the way through, and he predicted every single one of uh, these events that, that is happening there, then, um, you know, yeah, I, I haven't seen it, and, and it's, it's certainly not obvious. Um, and, and instead, what we're seeing is, you know, a kind of a transposed fog of war that has kind of overcome him. And I see I see Putin, um, rather than a wily fox, as being somebody who's just very, very isolated, isolated himself personally because he does, who, who can he trust? Um, but then secondly, isolated from the facts and from real information that would allow him to make good decisions um, from his perspective. But instead, what we've seen time after time is very bad decisions. And, uh, and in fact, what we just saw today, um, I think, was, uh, was his announcement that they're going to draft another 135 to 150,000 conscripts. Now, this is something that they do anyway, but nonetheless, uh, what are they going to do with all those uh, conscripts? Are they just going to throw them right into the fray? Um, how much training are they going to give them? So I see um, somebody who is, is pretty desperate, who's pretty isolated, and somebody who's not making very good decisions. And consequently, uh, I don't think that his chain of command is, is able to make very good decisions either. I couldn't agree with you. I don't think he's a Wally Fox. I think he miscalculated. I think he's regrouping and, and coming up with uh, modified shaped uh, objectives that he said he really meant all along. I think he's just desperate with coming up with something, and he will, and it may be very good. Reference on the conscripts, I'd love to have a couple of our drill sergeants take a look at how that eight, twelve weeks of training goes for the new Russian conscripts for combat readiness. And I guess if you're the third guy with the weapon, you just pick one up on a battlefield, just like in Stalingrad. But we'll see what happens. Uh, let me turn it over to either Brian or Ranger Doug uh, for any questions or comments they have. On John's topic, uh, uh, disinformation, uh, I.O. Go ahead. Uh, this is Brian. Um, I'll pick up something that John mentioned a while ago, and that is that we may be turning the Russian army into a caricature of what it really is. Uh, we know about the morale problems. We know about the problems of leadership supply. But uh, we might be overstating it, and in that respect, we may be underestimating its potential for operations, especially defensive operations. Um, similarly, I think we expect to see a great deal of trouble domestically for Putin. Uh, I think it will come. I don't really expect to see the trouble coming soon. His um, popularity is based on restoring prosperity and national prestige. It's going to take a while for the prosperity to fade as sanctions kick in. And how much do Russians know about how badly things are going? Uh, we don't really know. That's going to take a while, too. So I don't expect to see Putin's popularity to sink very quickly, very soon. I think it will sink, but just not in the next few weeks. Back to the general. No, thank you. Uh, great comments, Brian. I appreciate it. And, and, and you, you had referenced uh, our team to several articles uh, for the show, and, and some of them uh, uh, validate what you just said, at least from the author's uh, opinions and that. And, and it's going to be interesting how this next phase, because they're getting ready for another phase. And, and uh, it, I don't know if it's just the principle of mass and uh, with more disinformation to their to their troopers. Uh, who knows? Ranger Doug, reference John's subtopic disinformation uh, comments, please. Yes, well, I believe that 
disinformation is a key factor in Russian as well as in Ukrainian methodology. And the problem is it also is uh, rampant throughout the media anyway. So the problem we face is that sources can gather up information which is disinformation and they amplify it and all of a sudden you don't really know what's happening. But uh, I believe that uh, the serious problem Mr. Putin finds himself in is that basically in his own situation, he was disinformed or misinformed by his own staff simply because, as we've seen, uh, vehicles that were caught in that in that convoy that was stalled, it was found by some who were able to get eyes on the vehicles that the road wheels of the tanks and the, and the tires of the trucks, in many cases, had dry rotted and they could not move. And what that implies is that for some years, and you've commented on this in other programs, the Russians, who probably only exercise a small part of any unit at a given time, most likely had vehicles sitting in a motor pool looking great, painting the black on the tires and on the road wheels, and then selling off somewhere the other parts for money. And so there were no spares. And there's no way to repair those vehicles when they're stuck in a combat zone like that. So we're hearing a lot from Russia as well as from Ukraine regarding what's happening. Our own country has got its own take. What most people must do is try to find sources of information that they can believe in and people who take the time to actually think through the problem and give a range of options. That's what we do here, and that's the strength of this and several other programs I can think of. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. On VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The, the best truck driver I've known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754. 4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. 
The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. This is our 21st program. This is our sixth in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight we have with us John Fenzel, Brian Downey, General Grange, and myself, Ranger Doug. Over to you, General. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Our other panelist, Brian, who you just heard from, I'd like him to go ahead and, and talk about another subtopic on our program tonight. And I'd like Brian to examine the war in the south of Ukraine. We picked that because we believe that that may end up being, that could be the main effort. It may be just the number one supporting effort. Who knows? But, Brian, if you'll take us, when you look at the south of Ukraine and the Russian movements of forces and what you think they may do, take us from the Russian border all the way to Crimea and then keep going west all the way to Odessa and give us your view. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the war seems to be shifting from the north, uh, Kiev and Kharkiv, to the Donbass-Crimea region. Uh, it's going to take a while for the Russians to get troops there. We know that their logistical systems are very good, and uh, we also know that the Ukrainians have interior lines of communication, so I think they can allocate troops down there a lot more quickly than the Russians can. The Ukrainians will have two options. One is to wear down the Russians along a broad front stretching from the uh, far eastern area near the Russian border all the way to the Crimea and just a little bit west of that. Wear them down on a broad front. Keep wearing them down. Don't try anything fancy. Uh, just keep wearing them down. The second option would be to launch an offensive to split the Russian forces along the, on the Black Sea coast. Prevent that land bridge. Possibly go for Mariupol, the beleaguered city on the Black Sea. That would uh, be a tremendous psychological win for uh, Ukraine and for everyone supporting them, and it would underscore the fact that Russia is on its back foot. Uh, Russian forces, if split in two around Mariupol, would probably feel the need to launch a major effort to retake it. 
that land bridge is the main aim of the war right now, linking up the Russian territory to Crimea and possibly even west of that and going on for Odessa. That would effectively turn Ukraine into a landlocked country and make them vulnerable and beholden, perhaps, to Russia. Uh, however, if the Russians are defeated down in the south, adding on to defeats around Kiev and Kharkiv, uh, I think this could break the Russian army's offensive capacity, and we will we will be drifting off into a stalemate, which I think favors the Ukrainians. They have better weapons, better troops, better morale. Uh, this could break the Russian army. And uh, I'll bring it back to the general for discussion. Thank you, Brian. You, you brought up several questions on my mind, and, and John uh, and Ranger Doug may have a few themselves. First of all, I'm, I'm very surprised that, uh, and I know why it was called off, but they initially were going to hit Odessa mm-hmm. earlier on, a week ago or so, and they had to shift. And I know that they used Maripol as their, as their primary target at, for the beginning of that land bridge. And, in fact, they put some of the dirtiest fighters they could find, several Chechen battalions, in that fight. And, by the way, as you know from the news and other reports, uh, there's quite a few atrocities and other things going on in Mariupol that are, that are really bad. But why did they not, instead of just going from east to west, lockstep, and that land bridge, each of those major ports, all the way Kassan and Mikulov and then down to Odessa, why did they not hit one and cut it off and then work t- towards the center or something like that? Why are they why are they lockstepping it down the coastline? Or are they going to do a, a landing uh, here shortly? You know, there are signatures on open source of Russian fleets moving west of Crimea, you know, in a, in a position, a launch position with the right type of uh, ships for that type of amphibious operation off the coast again of Odessa. Your thoughts, over. The Russians may have been bogged down with too many uh, city urban warfare battles going on in Mariupol, Kherson, uh, Nikolaev, and they probably just didn't have the troops to keep going west. Uh, second, they may have been uh, a little troubled by their logistical capacities, their ability to uh, coordinate a land-sea-air operation on Odessa. Third, Odessa is very well prepared. There are a lot of cruise missiles there. There are a lot of fortifications there. And uh, it simply could have been too big a cost. I think the Russians still want Odessa, but I think they want to consolidate along the Black Sea coast first. Sure. Okay. And then the other the other question I have, and then I'll turn over to John. Uh, coming out of Belarus, you made a comment about the Ukrainians fighting on interior lines, and of course that's an advantage, uh, where the Russians are more force projecting, at least by ground, uh, maybe soon by sea, but at least by ground. But they're they're they have exterior lines versus the Ukrainians with interior lines, which favors the defender, which favors resupply. Why have they not cut or disrupted, at least, more so than they have, the lines of communication from Poland through Lviv towards Kiev, as an example, where it's pretty much 
freedom of movement except for missile strikes here and there. Why have they not done that to support their other efforts? I don't think the Russians have the troops for an operation in the western area of Ukraine. They certainly don't have the logistical capacity for that. A few weeks ago, there was some thinking that Putin was going to try to get Lukashenko, the strongman in Belarus, to use his army to, to uh, secure the West, to secure the to block the uh, supply lines coming in from the EU and NATO powers. I don't think you can trust the army of Belarus. It's very small. It is about 60% conscript with uh, the troops getting, I believe, 18 months of service. Well, that's kind of like a big Boy Scout camp rather than an army, and I don't think you can rely on it for offensive operations, especially since the president of Belarus is not very popular. He crushed a reform movement a few years ago with Putin's help, and I, I think you would see uh, the army simply wouldn't function. I believe there are several hundred Belarusian soldiers fighting with Ukrainian forces in uh, the south there. Uh, furthermore, somebody is blowing up railroad lines in Belarus. Two or three have already gone down. Uh, it's thought that these are disaffected Russian, uh, disaffected Belarusian security people. Well, I, I don't think you can trust the army of Belarus to perform any offensive operations whatsoever. Putin knows that. Back to you, General. Thank you. Uh, that actually was my next question was the Belarus Army. My question was actually the new forces that have been positioned by the Russians in southern Belarus on the other side of the border, uh, you know, north of uh, uh, Lusk, uh, Lviv, etc. But they seem to be a, a more reputable Russian force than was there initially holding, kind of holding the line on the western plain. But I do agree with you. There is some issues of weakness or not having enough forces to do something like that. However, I just, it just seems to me that they should disrupt with some means the lines of communication better than they are because the, the support continues to go in. And uh, with that happening on interior lines, it's not helping the Russians whatsoever. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me turn it over to John. He may want to comment, Brian, on our discussion. Uh, John, go ahead. Thanks, Cheryl and, and Brian. You know, I, I, I do agree. I mean, I think that what we're seeing right now in the South is, is a stalemate. It's a, it's a really bloody one. Um, it's a battle of attrition. Uh, and and I, I, I believe that um, my own opinion is, is that the, the stalemate might be the most realistic objective right now for the Ukrainian forces to maintain. And, you know, we, we haven't really seen any any change in uh, in the battle lines for you know probably about three weeks now. Um, we, we we do see the Ukrainians that are counterattacking there in the south. Um, the Russians are digging in, uh, and and in fact they're putting their their tanks in defilade right now right now just to avoid any further losses. You know, and as, as Brian pointed out in Mirpol, we're, we're seeing this this fight to control that corridor that would provide Russia with a direct corridor into into Crimea and, and so I think that that's their objective to consolidate that land bridge that General Grange you mentioned and and while Mariupol hasn't yet fallen you know this is the you know the, the, the situation there is desperate I mean there's no food there's no fuel there's no water um, and the fighting is is literally house to house and so this is the first place where the Russians are really having to do 
uh, urban fighting. And, and what they're finding out is that it's very, very intensive and it eats away at all their reserves. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Brian mentioned, you know, that, that, you know, how difficult an environment that is. And, and, but I think it's also important to keep in mind just how important Odessa is. It's the single bi- biggest port in Ukraine. And if they take uh, Mariupol, Odessa is the last big port that's directly right there on the Black Sea. And they won't have to go through the, um, the Straits of the Soft, and, they, uh, and they, that can be blocked by the Russians. So it's really the, the lifeline for, for all of Ukraine by, by any measure. But I think that as, as we talk about this, the key thing, you know, we might want to focus on the South, but the key thing to keep in mind is that Kiev is, is the main effort. Um, that's really the main goal that, that Russia ultimately has. But in, to get there, they know that they've got to control Odessa. They've got to control Mariupol. And so that's why we're seeing this effort in the South. And, um, but the South, by, by any measure, is a supporting effort to that overall invasion goal, that main effort of, of Kiev. And, I think ultimately where we're going to see um, just in probably in the, cup, in the coming days or weeks, unfortunately, is we're going to see um, Mariupol be captured and, um, and the city might be forced to capitulate um, ultimately. Um, I wish I could – I had a different opinion, but just seeing everything that's developed there, um, it's just the, the city is just uh, in dire straits. Appreciate the comments. So what you are describing, you believe that Kiev is still the main effort. I believe everybody in the phone may believe that. I'm not sure. But uh, it seems like they're going into a holding action now until they get some other successes along the land bridge uh, to affect at least uh, the morale of the people uh, and, and using the sacrifice that the people are going through through just total destruction uh, of, of – uh, or of those cities uh, to either distract or cause morale issues within the country. Uh, also, there's been a, a large increase in Russian strikes on Ukrainian air defense systems. They've taken quite a few out recently. And mm-hmm. I, 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 anybody's opinion, two, two questions I have. I'll start with Brian. And one is, is Kiev a holding action now? The second one is, usually when you take out air defense the way they did the last 48 hours, that signals something happening after that. Your comments, please, Brian. Well, I think the air defenses that the Ukraine has are also effective against incoming missiles uh, and cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, that sort of thing. So uh, if Russia can take them out, it can continue one of its main thing uh, objectives, which is shattering every Ukrainian city until they give in. Uh, There's a war of attrition with troops, and then there's also a war of attrition with cities. Can Putin destroy the will of the Ukrainian people by destroying their cities? I don't think he can, but I think that's what he's trying to do. Um, As long as Putin's in power, he's going to try to take over all of the Ukraine. If uh, the war, if there's some sort of ceasefire or peace, deal in the next year or so, and I think it's, we're pretty far away from that, then it's all, Putin would just see it as a, a pause, a break. He wants to retake that area. He wants to establish Russian uh, power. Remember when he had that big football stadium 
rally a few weeks ago. There was somebody singing about taking oh, yeah. back Ukraine yeah. and the Baltic states. And this is running around Putin's head. It shouldn't be. He should be disabused of that. But uh, I think it's still in the back of his mind, and maybe not so far in the back of his mind. Thank you. Brian, the other question, though, do you think that Kiev is a holding action right now for other actions down south? Uh, I think the Ukrainians are pushing the Russians back. Uh, They're about to retake that airport not too far from uh, Kiev. I think it's a a little more than a holding action. I think the Ukrainians are making modest gains there. And uh, the Russians are pulling troops out of there. And as I said earlier, probably shifting them off to the east and the southeast. Ranger Doug, uh, comments on uh, the southern uh, offensive the land bridge down by Maripol, uh, heading uh, west towards Odessa, Crimea, that area. Your comments on that, please. I think the war in the south, as well as the war everywhere, is is meant to create a favorable situation for negotiation eventually, which results in uh, Putin accepting whatever he will to end the conflict. And it's a matter of time, I think, until he actually has reached his own culminating point. I think Brian very effectively described the fighting in the south, and uh, the problem that anyone faces when attempting an amphibious landing under pressure is that you must practice it. It has to be realistically worked for a good period of time to have all the forces capable of executing. And that means a combination of sea power, air power, and the physical ability to land in a favorable location. I mean, we got to buy it in, Sean, because we sneaked in. Uh, on a very severe tidal situation and came up behind the North Koreans before they knew it. But D-Day was a completely different story. That was opposed, and in fact, it was brutal. But we practiced and practiced and practiced before we went in. The Russians haven't been practicing real landings, nor have we. So people who say we can simply whip up an amphibious campaign, that's not possible. After several years in World War II, we had plenty of experience. We developed all kinds of new boats and techniques, and so D-Day was not a foregone conclusion, but it went well. Uh, But other than that, amphibious landings, I don't think are going to be attempted. What they'll try to do is sneak forces in or bring them down by land. Plus, when the amphibious force tries to go in in the south, in the Black Sea region, to reinforce the area around Odessa and such, uh, subject to strikes that we've already seen by, by cruise missiles that will sink ships. And remember, in the Falklands War, a single Exocet missile could sink a a British destroyer or the Atlantic conveyor, a larger cargo ship. It's no better now. These ships that everyone is using rely on economy. They're lightweight. Many of them have aluminum hulls. They can't stand uh, being hit by modern fire, especially those missiles designed to sink the ships. By the same token, there has to be air power supporting uh, exploitative landings and offensive actions. And right now, the Russians, are, I believe, are, are hesitant to fly because they haven't yet taken down the sophisticated air defense networks that the Ukrainians have because the Ukrainians have the S-300, which is a fine set of missiles, and, and in fact, up until recently, were produced in Ukraine. So they have full capability to employ those against the Russians, and the Russians, I think, are, are very, very hesitant to fly. As a result, this is going to be a slog, and I think we're going to see it end within a finite period of time. But I think Brian described that very effectively as well as did John. Ladies and gentlemen, let's pause for a commercial. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You do not want to miss what's coming next. 
VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities, empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nife.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nife.org and click on VDAC. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back. Here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Your little boy ain't gonna die. Your little boy. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. This is our 21st program. This is our sixth in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight we have with us John Fenzel, Brian Downing, General Grange, and myself, Ranger Doug. Over to you, General. Our third subtopic tonight has to do with a peace agreement. So there's been a lot of talk about a peace agreement lately, and the question to you is, what might that look like, a peace agreement? I think that what we see shaping up right now is that uh, what we've been talking about all along regarding war aims is beginning to gel out, partly because Russia has not been as successful as we thought it would. It seem to me that they're angling for some relationship to annexing or uh, claiming the Donbass, uh, Luhansk, Donetsk, with a strip of land that goes along uh, from there all the way to Crimea, allowing them an ability to move by land across what now is Ukrainian territory on the western side of the Sea of Azov. Otherwise, they must drive around to the east on the Sea of Azov. It makes it very difficult for them to reach Crimea. The width of that strip is pretty and swear that it will not uh, join NATO, but there is talk that it may be allowed to join uh, the EU or at least share some relationship to the EU. As we remember, Russia has a relationship to NATO. There may be some ability for Ukraine in some way to do that. What I don't believe Mr. Putin wants is a totally owned state of Ukraine uh, tied right up next to NATO without a buffer zone in between. He would like to have a favorable government to him, uh, as well as would his successors, 
uh, in place, and they'll do everything they can to influence that by any measures they can employ, even including menacing with physical force again. His effort to hold on uh, to a position close to Kiev allows for a certain bargaining point. That force that's there can always be withdrawn once favorable terms are reached. And I think we're going to see a serious push for some kind of an accommodation within 30 days. It could happen very rapidly, too, because there are talks going on that Turkey is facilitating as well as Israel, and there are others likely that we don't know about going on elsewhere. Uh, there may also be a secret channel between uh, the elements uh, communicating by any number of means. But as relates to John Fenzel's first question in this case, much of what we're seeing in the open press is likely disinformation. So as John's question also would have us do, we have to find sources where people are willing to try to discuss things logically and come up with options. That's one of the features of our program. So I think that that's the way we're going to see things uh, work in the end. 30 days, maybe 45. No one can really hold out that long, and they're holding the world hostage right now. Pretty much everybody's accomplished what they need to, and the Ukrainians have accomplished the most. I think the United States is going to be a feature in this, but it isn't a principle. Generally, it probably will be EU, uh, NATO, Israel, Turkey, and obviously the UN. And it may very well be that we'll see a very serious agreement finally finalized in the UN. And always behind all of this, there is China, who gave, I believe, Putin uh, an agreement on when he could conduct it, how they would support him, and so forth. But the Chinese support has been rather tepid, simply because Putin hasn't succeeded as uh, he intended to. Back to you, General. Let me follow up with a, a base question on what you just said uh, on some type of a possible peace agreement, whether it be brokered by Israel, Turkey, or EU involved, NATO involved, China, whoever. What what uh, what does Putin want now out of this war, and what does Lazinsky want now out of this war? For instance, does Lazinsky think now that he can win, wearing the Russians down, and that's his aim? Uh, does Putin think he'll just use the Donbass and the other maybe a few ports, and he'll that'll be his win? What do they want, each of them? Go ahead. Yes, I believe that. Uh, Putin would like as much of that eastern part of Ukraine as he could get. He would likely like to have a strip that is over 60 kilometers wide. It needs to be wider than artillery range from the nearest principal road that he can use to reinforce in uh, Crimea from Russia. He wants to be able to travel from Russia into uh, Donbass and drive or move columns down and it probably will have to include one or more rail lines since rail is, is so important in the area. Um, and I believe he's going to want to try to characterize things in some way to show that he won. Uh, that will likely be a, a process that will involve Russian active measures as well as other disinformation. Uh, the problem that we have is that Mr. Zelensky is appearing to become convinced by his success in the defensive operations that he might be able to do more, which, of course, the, the process of doing more will require more offensive operations. He's been very successful with sophisticated technologies that did not involve mass formations of armor nor uh, actual manned aircraft. But if he tries to move too far other than to counterattack places that have been taken by the Russians, uh, and tries to go on offense, I believe his mobility will be limited, just the same as the Russians was. 
there is a faction not only in Ukraine, but elsewhere that's urging him to insist on trying to win. I think that's injurious. I think about all that's been achieved now is all we ought to see, and everyone can find a way through negotiation to walk away with their war aim satisfied. But I believe Mr. Putin will insist on that strip. The strip needs to be wide enough to allow protection for vehicles moving along it. And uh, I believe he'll want to try at some point through active and other measures, which are propaganda and, and actual measures inside the country, to try to bring about a government more favorable to him. I would not rule out an assassination attempt on uh, Zelensky or any of his principal ministers. And oddly enough, those people that have gone to some of the negotiations so far have been attacked by Russian poisons. Whether it was the Russians themselves that did this or not, no one knows. But since it was the Novichok poison that was used uh, to attack uh, Roman Abramovich uh, and several others uh, who were not necessarily friendly to Mr. Putin, uh, we just don't know. So we now have a situation where even attacks against people are fueling a disinformation campaign. It's very murky right now and difficult to make out uh, what actually will happen. Eventually, I think the fog will clear and we will notice that an agreement like what I'm describing will happen. And I'm hopeful that it will happen within about 30 days. Back to you, General. Uh, thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, I'd like to have Brian, if you would comment on that same question on peace agreement, what a beat to the leaders want. Uh, what's your what what comments do you have following Ranger Doug on his on his what he just said to us? Uh, I'm not as optimistic as Ranger Doug is on this. As long as Putin wants that land bridge, and as long as Ukraine is able to prevent that land bridge, I think the fighting's going to go on. If there is any agreement, it's going to be once Putin abandons the idea of a land bridge and that we go back to something pretty close to what the borders were six weeks ago before the invasion came. That is that Russian troops more or less occupy eastern Ukraine, uh, but not the land bridge. Would that be acceptable to Putin? Uh, I think it would be a deep embarrassment, but he may have to take it. Um, I, I just don't see anything coming. There should be pressure from China, as mentioned, and India and Israel and Turkey for some sort of solution. But uh, there's still that issue of the land bridge, land bridge unless uh, and until Russia takes it or clearly loses it, then I think we're going to unfortunately have a continuing fight. Back to you, General. That's the purpose of this show. Not everyone has to be in agreement. There's different phases. You believe in this part and not that part. We have on our show tonight guests that have a lot of experience, both at strategic, the operational, and tactical level. The purpose is a good debate on some of the things that our listeners can chew on themselves about what may happen going forward. Uh, John, your comments on peace talks and uh, the intent of both leaders. Over to you. Thanks, General. You know, it, it's really fascinating because, you know, nobody has a crystal ball here on how a, a peace deal would come about. I mean, there's any number of different outcomes, um, you know, as to the war itself, but then also, um, you know, what would actually lead to a peace deal, whether it's, it's an outright victory, a partial victory, it's, whether it's division of Ukraine, escalation, who knows, you know, any of those things could, could trigger, um, Russia to actually seek in earnest a, a peace deal. Um, in, in various forms. It, it, you know, I just read today um, 
that uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, uh, had been advocating. He used this term of an Austria-like compromise that could deliver uh, peace between Russia and Ukraine um, before they would launch a full-scale assault on, on Kiev. And a deal like that um, would probably – it would have to involve – Kiev renouncing any ambitions to join NATO, um, promising not to host any military bases or weaponry from, you know, whether it's the United States, England, Turkey, whatever it might be. And um, and then what I also found interesting is that, that Israel's involved with this. In fact, uh, the prime minister, um, Naftali Bennett, um, is is deeply involved in these peace negotiations as we speak. And what he said is that um, – is that any peace deal um, would would still allow Ukraine to keep a standing army, which which I thought was was pretty fascinating. But uh, but Peskov, you know, keeps on talking about um, Austria and 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 using this, these terms of a similar 1955 pledge, um, and uh, you know, and that kind of dates back to ending the the occupation of Austria after the Second World War. So there's a lot of different things, and and then that enters into um, what, uh, what Ranger Doug was talking about with regard to, to NATO, and you know if uh, if Ukraine um, declares its neutrality, then it's also not going to be joining um, NATO, and they would have to renounce any any uh, bids to do that. And what I what I found interesting there was that Zelensky was just speaking to uh, actually it was a military audience, and he said that Ukraine would never join NATO. Um, and that uh, that we should that that not becoming a member of a military alliance was uh, quote a truth that must be recognized. So I, I thought that that was pretty notable. So you've got these kind of public pronouncements that Zelensky's making, and both sides are making actually. If you count Peskov in this in this calculus, and and so there, there, when you when you look, when you read these in the media, what what that really is is both sides talking to one another indirectly. And um, and so I'm, you know, although I, I'm cautiously optimistic that something like this will happen, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think that um, that you know Russia is going to have to experience many more defeats before they realize that they're um, part of a, a losing cause right now. And um, and there's there's lots of other things too, but I, I think that that we really have to all maintain kind of realistic expectations for this. Um, and to keep in mind that that, um, that Russia has all the firepower they need to uh, inflict massive, massive damage on, on Ukraine, and, um, and and they're willing to do it. So um, that's uh, that's something that's got to enter into that calculus as well. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Well, this is a perfect opportunity to break for one of our sponsors. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, bringing you shows like Wounded But Not Broken, Roll Call, and Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. My father was the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. 
like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Roses are red, violets are blue. You want your disability claim? Get VDAC. End of story. Go to nifv.org. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back from that commercial. I believe that disinformation is a key factor in Russian as well as in Ukrainian methodology. And the problem is it also is uh, rampant throughout the media anyway. So the problem we face is that sources can gather up information, which is disinformation, and they amplify it. And all of a sudden, you don't really know what's happening. But uh, I believe that... Uh, the serious problem Mr. Putin finds himself in is that basically in his own situation, he was disinformed or misinformed by his own staff simply because, as we've seen, uh, vehicles that were caught in that in that convoy that was stalled, it was found by some who were able to get eyes on the vehicles that the road wheels of the tanks and the, and the tires of the trucks in many cases had dry rotted and they could not move. And what that implies is that for some years, and you've commented on this in other programs, the Russians who probably only exercise a small part of any unit at a given time, most likely had vehicles sitting in a motor pool looking great, painting the black on the tires and on the road wheels, and then selling off somewhere the other parts for money. And so there were no spares. And there's no way to repair those vehicles when they're stuck in a combat zone like that. So... We're hearing a lot from Russia as well as from Ukraine regarding what's happening. Our own country has got its own take. What most people must do is try to find sources of information that they can believe in and people who take the time to actually think through the problem and give a range of options. That's what we do here, and that's the strength of this and several other programs I can think of. General, that, that's what I have to say about that. Over to you. Uh, thank you, Ranger Doug. I appreciate it. So in a wrap-up tonight, I'd like to ask our panelists if they have any closing comments on the war in Ukraine. We'll go to you first, Brian. Go ahead. 
I'd like to add on something to the discussion of Odessa, if I can go back into history. Uh, that was the site of uh, a big naval mutiny in 1905, just off the coast of Odessa. That's where the uh, crew of the battleship Potemkin mutinied over mostly about bad food, bad supply, and uh, very harsh discipline from the officers. Well, I think we're seeing that in the Russian army today, so perhaps we'll see a reprise of that. History doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Maybe we'll see that off the coast of Odessa soon. Thank you, Brian. I, we love it when history is brought into here, and I, I think it's going to repeat itself. It already has the way these Russian soldiers are, are treated. Uh, yeah. Just just think of the most important thing for Russian soldiers, more important than food, more important than water, more, more, more important than the type of uniform they wear, and that is good soldier training. And I, I doubt that those... 100,000 new recruits are going to get adequate training to fight this type of war. I go over to uh, to John. John, closing comments on tonight's program. To you, sir. Thanks, General. You know, just to conclude, I, I really believe that any peace process requires a, a shared view of the truth on, on, on all sides, and that's very hard to come by. But stripping that misinformation, um, as much of a challenge as it might be, is really going to be critical to uh, to any peace process that we see down the road. And you know, the the battle um, for the for the South is we talked about that is in many respects I think too the the phase one of this war. And after Mariupol falls, if it does fall, then Odessa is going to be the next big target on the on the road to Kiev. And the the idea that that you know Ukraine. Um, you know, the time is on the side of, of Ukraine, I believe, is just a really dangerous wager that, um, that any number of decision makers are making right now that we're seeing in the media. And it really only contributes to this kind of continued rampant misinformation and, and disinformation that's going to delay any resolution to this conflict. So in conclusion, I would say that what we're probably going to be seeing here is a, is a very bloody, terrible fight that will continue. And, um, and and we can only hope and pray that uh, the calmer heads will, will prevail. Um, and the only way to do that, I believe, is by conveying the truth in any way, shape, or form that we can do it. So it's a privilege to be here with you all on this great program. Thanks so much for having me. What I'd like to do is just take the three subtopics and, and make a few comments. And also with what Ranger Doug just said, I, I have been asked for summary of what probably will be the next steps. And, it's my opinion only, but watching it fairly closely, and, and uh, part of it, I have to maintain my my enthusiasm of why how I would do something like this, and, and but focus on uh, Mazinski and, and Putin themselves. Uh, I, I do believe that uh, there's going to be quite an effort in the South. Uh, Maripol will be the first one at all costs. They're going to they have very tough fighters in that area. Uh, but but so does the Ukrainians, and it's just going to be a bloodbath uh, and rubble. And and the thing that I'm concerned about in that piece is that if you continue on down the coastline to the different cities, and, and the key ones are all uh, on the water uh, or tributaries to the water, going east to west, um, it still comes up to me the importance of Odessa. Odessa just means something. The name, it just is it's key. 
And even though amphibious operations are tough, the Russians have started taking out those 300-type ADA systems. They've already started it. They already positioned strategic bombers. They've reinforced the missile units in striking range of Odessa. They've already reactivated. I shouldn't say reactivated. It's been activated. They've already reinforced the breakaway separatist in Moldova for hitting the Ukrainian forces from the west flank and from from the uh, from the north to isolate Odessa. I believe there'll be a massive bombardment of missiles uh, from land, from air, and from sea on Odessa, and some a type, even even if it's unsuccessful, some type of amphibious operation. And remember, they have under that command an airborne division, an airborne division. So for John's sake, Mr. Paratrooper, they're going to use at least helicopters or something to do aerosols. They have not been very successful successful with those to date, but I believe they're going to do something just because the preparation in the adjacent areas for such a for such an operation. It was called off once because they need to get a couple wins on some of these cities on the coast first just to have the effect morally on the Ukrainian military and breaking the will of the people. That's in the south. I think that Kev will be a holding action for a while. They'll keep the pressure on that main city, mainly because that's the seat of government. That's where the leaders are to make the decisions. And it's it's an icon for the people of Ukraine and for the government. I think that they'll have holding actions also around Kharkiv. They won't they won't give that up. They'll just hold the line there as best they can on the eastern front as they do the southern attacks. And I do think they'll increase the interdiction of the lines of communication coming out of Poland and and Hungary, not so much Hungary, but I should say Poland, Slovakia, and Romania, but mainly Poland. They can't live with that resupply to the already favorable interior line that the Ukrainian army has. They can't live with that. So they have to interdict, if, if nothing else, at least aircraft and missile fires. And I think that's why they're doing such a new surge on taking out ADA systems uh, throughout throughout. Ukraine. So I think it's going to it's going to continue longer than 30 30 days or so. I think it will continue on. To keep in mind when it is over, whatever that looks like, from our discussions on a peace agreement, the humanitarian assistance requirements are going to be massive in Ukraine. Those cities on the coastline in the south, as an example, are out of food. They're out of food. People that have been evacuated have told the stories. It's miserable. Some places in Ukraine, it's three three squares a day, but not down there. So I appreciate our guest tonight talking about the war in Ukraine, what's going to happen with disinformation, you know, the propaganda, the information operations by Putin, also by on, on, on Lazinski on his side to influence NATO and other players at the strategic level. And they're going to do it at the operational level with the commanders. We killed 10 generals already in the in the Russian army and playing those things. But mainly targeting the people of Ukraine. They have to. And consequently, on the other side, they're going to target the families of Russian soldiers that have been killed and the lies of how many have died. 
have been terribly wounded. Then you're going to have the, the same situation on the peace talks. And, and if you don't listen to multiple sources of information, you're going to get one-sided uh, comments to shape your, your, your thoughts. So you have to have a, uh, a variety of, of, of sources uh, to form your opinion on what's going on because of the disinformation. So, again, thank you for our guest tonight. I want to thank all our listeners for for our, our episode number six on the war in Ukraine. Good night, and thank you. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives.